Welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. I'm your host, Mick West. My guests today are Professor Mia Bloom and Dr. Sofia Moskalenko, the authors of the book Pastels and Pedophiles, uh, which is a book about the QAnon conspiracy theory, how it came about and what we can do about it. So I'd like to thank uh, both of you very much for joining me here today. Thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure. I found the book really interesting, uh, partly because it kind of overlapped a lot with with my kind of area of interest. I noticed that the book was it was only published uh, back in June, you know, a couple of months ago. But I imagine you started working on it in the previous year. Would that be correct? Yeah, what had happened was um, the National Science Foundation and the Pentagon had asked me to present about QAnon because General Michael Flynn had pledged allegiance. And there was a concern that many people in the military or people among veterans might follow suit. And so they were looking at it from a security perspective. And that, you know, when we then had on the 25th of January, Christmas Day morning, um, the explosion in Nashville, initially people thought that was QAnon related. That's they, they called us back and they said, okay, uh, we're, we're going to give you research funding to do this huh. for the next few years because we perceive this as a potential threat to national security. So Sophia and I have been working on it for quite a while, but um, the book came out June 15th. Prior to, say, you know, January the 6th this year, was the focus like uh, a different focus or was it essentially the same or was it kind of, uh, kind of a sea change in what your approach was after January the 6th? Well, so there was a there was a hybrid because at some point the reason why the um, the head of the FBI, Christopher Ray, had designated QAnon first in 2019 and then again in 2020 as a potential terrorist threat was because there was a threat to the Hoover Dam. So there weren't many mm. crimes associated with QAnon in that first period, 2018 to 2020, but because one was a threat against infrastructure, it qualified as having potential for terrorism. And that's where, you know, Sophia and I have been working on terrorism for 25 and 30 years, uh, respectively. So this is where there's the possibility. But also when we went into it, we were looking at, well, what are the similarities, but where are the differences? And Sophia was able to glean some really important differences between what we're used to seeing from terrorist organizations and terrorist operatives Versus QAnon. Uh, Sophia, I, I find uh, when I try to explain QAnon to people, it's, it's a very uh, difficult thing to get across. If people were to ask you, what's your, uh, say, you know, 30 second to one minute explanation from your perspective, uh, your expert perspective of what QAnon is? So um, as Mia said, we came into this line of, of research uh, thinking of QAnon as a terrorist group, a radical group. Mm. Um, but the more I learned about it, the more data we got, the more differences we saw between a traditional terrorist group, like a jihadist group or right-wing you know, militia group or uh, environmental uh, terrorist groups. And so our view that we expressed in the book is that QAnon is not uh, like... A terrorist group. It's not fair or legitimate to compare it with ISIS, for example. Um, there's several fundamental differences about it um, that mean we have to treat it differently from the point of view of policing it and also from the point of view of how to 
approach, direct our efforts toward people in our community, our friends and neighbors who may be susceptible or already inside this uh, rabbit hole. So some of the differences that mark QAnon from terrorist groups are, first, just its sheer size. So with terrorist groups, we look at small face-to-face groups. Um, Maybe there's a larger group of supporters who donate money, provide logistical support. But still, we're looking at, you know, a couple of hundred people, maybe a thousand if you're you're talking about Al-Qaeda at its height, right? With QAnon, every poll we're seeing that's representative of the population of Americans, for example, is putting the number of people entrenched in QAnon beliefs at tens of millions so around 30 million people, if you project the poll results, are convinced that a cabal of blood-drinking, sadistic pedophiles have taken over our government media and a bunch of other things like, you know, lizard people and flat earth and space lasers and all this colorful um, set of, of characters and narratives. Um, that's one big difference. Another really big difference is that QAnon is more about ideas, ideology, if you want to, you know, call it that, than it is about action. So how many QAnon people were ever involved in an ideologically motivated crime? I just gave you the number of about 30 million people. How many out of these were ever implicated in radical actions? The answer is about 70. And that includes all the QAnon followers who were indicted for their participation in the January 6th insurrection. So the proportion of people who are actually dangerous as far as their actions are concerned, who may carry out a terrorist act, is minuscule compared to a traditional terrorist group. And the last major difference is that we discovered and our colleagues have since substantiated our uh, observations in, in case studies we did for the book, that an overwhelming proportion of QAnon followers suffer from mental health problems and diagnose psychopathology. We're talking about um, three and a half times the rate of these problems that are encountered in an average American adult population. So these three major differences mean that QAnon is something qualitatively different. And so we can't really use the tools in our toolbox that we developed for dealing with Al-Qaeda and domestic extremists to deal with QAnon. We have to address the fact that it's an internet-based group as opposed to -to face-to-face. We have to address the mental health angle. We have to approach it more from the community health standpoint, just because there's so many of people in our lives, you know, who believe these things. We can't put them all in prison. We can't put them into a de-radicalization camp. So we have to do something different here. I'm going to jump in and add one thing. You know, this issue about mental health is really important. For the most part, all the terrorist organizations that um, we've studied uh, collectively, individually, they tend not to recruit people who are mentally ill. The first reason is someone who has mental illness is not good with operational secrecy. The second reason someone who's mentally ill tends not to finish the task. Now, the only time we ever saw people deliberately targeted for recruitment who were mentally ill, the provisional IRA used to have a squad that would do the kneecapping. And they wanted people who were kind of psychopaths for that job. But generally, no. The only other place we've seen it, ISIS did recruit from prisons and they didn't, you know, they weren't really selective 
when they were bringing people over. So we did see people who were exhibiting some signs of psychopathology. But for the most part, when you're dealing with mental illness, terrorist groups don't want the mentally ill person. And, and there's good reason for it. So is it really um, a unique phenomenon? Is, is, is there any historical precedent for a kind of a you know, mass delusion slash conspiracy theory slash terrorist organization slightly uh, of this scale? Or is this something entirely new? What's really unique about QAnon is its adaptability. It has this almost, you know, like the frogfish that it blends in with its environment. And in many respects, the reason why QAnon has become such, I mean, a phenomenon is that no matter where it's going, it's changing ever so slightly. So there is the basis of belief about, you know, the blood, the cabal that's running things and they've been in charge forever and they're drinking the blood of children and trafficking children and, and, and raping the children and doing all these horrible things. And then it starts to get larger and it's taking on local flavor. So in France, it's connected to the Yellow Jackets. In Britain, it's Brexit. In Germany, it's anti-immigrant. And it's talking about there was a series of um, attacks against women by Muslim groups um, and they were sexually harassed at uh, whether it was New Year's Eve or some other holidays. So they're, they're connecting with a fertile environment about something else. And, and the example we use in the book is that it's like the sticky ball rolling down the hill and it's picking up things along the way and it's getting ever, ever larger. But it's never quite the same depending on who believes it. And, and it, in part, and I'm, I'm so sad that I read your book after we wrote the book because you hit the nail on the head when you talk about you know, people get to the point at which, oh, no, no, that's too crazy for me. Lizard people? No, that's my line. And so what we were seeing is not everyone who's in QAnon believes all of it. They may believe portions, but the portion they believe is about the blood drinking cabal that are, you know, exploiting children. Yeah, which is pretty extreme in itself, I would say. Uh, and most people, I think, would say that. It's it's obviously been a big part of, of the news over the last uh, last year or so. And, you know, one thing that I think shifted for me in my understanding of QAnon was I, I originally just thought it was just one, another silly conspiracy theory. But, of course, it's, it seems to go uh, a lot further than everything else. You know, to what extent do you feel that QAnon uh, is an emergent uh, phenomenon versus something that is being directed or manipulated or at least enhanced uh, by you know, external forces like you know, other countries and people within this country. I'm, I'm going to just very quickly say that we know at the outset in October 2017, Russian, like the internet research agency that was so involved in 2016, helped amplify QAnon. We, are, we were also seeing the role of China and other malign foreign actors that have been involved in disinformation. So we've seen that the role they play has been ultimately to weaken American institutions and our democracy, our faith in government, faith in elections, and also the mainstream media. But Sophia, I think you, you wanted to follow up with that. Yeah, we think it's, it's a synergy between these grassroots movements that um, offer a way to channel a collective rage and, and collective grievances through these narratives that they built together online in, in puzzle-like sequences of interactions. 
um, which makes it very attractive for a lot of people because, you know, we're living in times of unprecedented changes and COVID was a major unprecedented change. And, and now vaccines are offering a new fertile ground for exploring one's creativity, right? Um, so on the one side, you have this um, role that QAnon plays um, for a lot of people of, of being a, a, an easily reached connection to other people to, um, to share emotions, to air grievances, to kind of um, basically synchronize a lot of their um, attitudes and ideas. And on the other hand, you have very savvy political operatives who are capitalizing on how easy it is to reach these same people because, you know, QAnon and all these ideas are at our fingertips 24 hours a day, right, through our screens. And they're either exploiting it for material gain through merchandising and fundraising, or they're exploiting this grassroots movement for political power, which we've seen in, in some of American politicians. Um, or, as Mia mentioned, we, we see a number of political players from abroad use QAnon as a lever to widen the divides in the American population and then exploit these fissures, these tectonic plates, you know, breaking apart and, and drifting farther apart. Yeah. And in some ways the, uh, you know, you mentioned the Russians and uh, one of the, the, you know, one of the, the fundamental things in conspiracy theories is this anti-Semitic uh, thing and the protocols of the learned el- elders of Zion was something I believe that was created essentially as Russian propaganda. Uh, not, not sure exactly how long ago, like around a hundred years ago. 1903. Right. Yeah. So over over a hundred years ago, uh, hundred hundred and eighteen, they were kind of doing the same thing. And and this is, is, is in some ways it's something I think that that you know it's not unique to Russia. Obviously, like all countries do some kind of propaganda. Uh, you know, the U.S. obviously has has propaganda outlets uh, and historically has has had them uh, different to to other countries but you know to, to, to what extent do you think this is like that like what the russians were trying to do with the protocols of the elders of zion you know 118 years ago so one of the things that we did in the book is you know you would very often hear that QAnon is based on anti-semitic tropes and then no one would tell you what the tropes were so we actually did a deep dive and we, we presented in the book sort of where do the protocols of elders of Zion come from? And if you think about at the turn of the century in 1902, and you had the czar in place still, he hadn't been overthrown yet during the Russian Revolution. But what did he see? He saw throughout Europe these movements for democracy. And he saw, you know, again, he perceived them as being Jewish run. And then at home, Marxism, he also perceived as being Jewish run. And so when the Tsarist secret police forged this document, which they cobbled together, it was also plagiarized from existing materials. Mm-hmm. In part, it was because the Tsar was looking at the Jews in the Pale of Settlement going, you know, these unruly members of, of my kingdom or what Tsardom are, are really quite troublesome. I need to find a way to get rid of them and minimize their influence. And if you think about it, it would have ended there because the Times of London right away recognized it as a forgery. But then in the 1920s, Henry Ford took over the Dearborn Independent and he brought the protocols of the Elders of Zion to America 
called the international Jew, translated it to American English and gave it new life. And so this is why you have not only the protocols appearing in every anti-Semitic movements from 1902 on, but it's part of Mein Kampf. So Hitler read it. It's been translated into every language on the planet. And, and we, we actually included this. It's a funny story. The Saudi, you know, in the Saudi uh, royal family, whenever there's an American visitor, uh, like VIP, and this would have been obviously before pandemic, uh, they would give them this beautiful leather embossed version of the protocols of the elders of Zion. And you had all these American congressmen and senators trying to figure out how to get rid of it before we got (laughs) back to the states because they did not want it found on their person so this is where you know we've been waiting for the arabic QAnon. we actually have a member of our research team who's fluent in arabic waiting for it because they already have the protocols they already love conspiracies in arabic they call it muammarat they love conspiracies so that's the one part of the world that hasn't had that much QAnon just yet. It was fascinating. I didn't didn't realize that about uh, that part of the world. It was, uh, yeah. I think uh, you know we, we often think of conspiracy theories as a, a uniquely American thing, uh, and we, we we view them in an American context. We think of the moon landings being fake. We think of you know nine eleven being an inside job. We think of JFK being assassinated. But of course, all the other countries they all have uh, conspiracy theories as well. But what it seems to me is that uh, a lot of them also import American conspiracy theories. Uh, and that seems to be very much happening with, with QAnon. I was teaching a seminar on conspiracy theory while we were writing the book. And one of the things that came up, and I think that this is in the literature, it's fairly consistent that almost everyone believes in at least one conspiracy theory. So for me, I was always curious whether Lady Diana Spencer, Mm -hmm. did she die accidentally or was it because she was dating Dodie Fayed? And the idea that the stepfather of the future king would be an Arab was something that didn't sit well with members of the royal family, right? So I think everyone believes in a conspiracy theory, but then it just matters to what extent they're willing to have the entire world dictate, you know, that there's nothing you can trust and the mainstream media is out to get you and that there are these cabals that are pulling the strings like the puppet masters. But we do see that there are conspiracy theories all over the world and a lot of them have this local connection. Uh, I was quite surprised to, to learn just how popular QAnon was was in the, the UK, my home country, and just because it's uh, you get people in the UK who became obsessed with the American election, uh, which is certainly something that would never have happened when uh, when I was growing up in in the UK. We barely paid any attention to it at all, uh, but now it seems to be the uh, you know a large part of people's existence. It was the the children campaign last year that pushed over the top. There were 20 different demonstrations throughout the UK last summer for Save the Children. And it's this idea that we individually all have to prevent this child trafficking and, you know, the exploitation of the, the children. It's a way of making every single person feel that it's their responsibility and duty to step up. And so it's, it's been a very effective campaign and it's been a very horrific campaign for the British charity, save the children. Yes. Yeah. Which is, you know, I, I recognize the name immediately because, you know, I grew up in the UK and save the children was an extremely uh, popular charity 
uh, when I was growing up and well-regarded. And now, of course, the name has been kind of uh, uh, corrupted by, by the association with QAnon. Uh, but it kind of brings me to like the next point, which is you know, something that the book is kind of about, pastels and pedophiles, is the, the female aspect of it. Uh, and and you know, the idea that QAnon, in a way, kind of became a little bit more feminized. It started out as being this, this thing that grew up in these toxic, uh, male-dominated uh, message boards. Uh, and it kind of made this shift. Uh, can you kind of describe how that happened and if it was a deliberate shift? Um, so, right, that's another interesting difference between QAnon and traditional ra- radical groups who tend to be male-dominated and sometimes overtly, you know, forbid, you know, women from becoming right. part, part of their group. Um, with QAnon, we saw um, this interesting trend where um, yoga influencers and natural healing influencers and on Instagram and on Facebook began posting QAnon content, which overlapped with, with their natural content. So before they would say, don't vaccinate your kids because it's going to cause autism. And now they would say, you know, don't vaccinate against COVID because it's going to turn your kids into LGBTQ. So they already had a very receptive crowd among their followers and it landed very well with them. Um, and, and of course, the Save the Children um, hashtag and, and all the messaging that QAnon put out spoke exclusively to women in a way that it didn't to men because, you know, many women have children of their own and they, of course, would have a kind of maternal instinct and, and, a, and a responsibility that they would feel to participate in this campaign. Um, so that, that became extremely popular with women. And a third um, interesting thing that happened was QAnon really gained momentum at the same time as in the United States, we had these really um, um, polarizing political events happening around uh, George Floyd's murder and Black Lives Matter protests. And a lot of women, especially white women who are middle class or upper middle class, they didn't feel comfortable having these kinds of political discussions. A lot of them are overtly or covertly racist. And the alternative to having these political discussions was save the children, because you would still be, you know, in this swirling political vortex. But at the same time, it's something that everybody could agree on in their social environment, right? So they bring up suffering children and who wouldn't want to, you know, do something about this horrible thing. Um, so again, a combination of, of factors that made QAnon, um, we don't have the numbers because again, of how large it is, but it, it seems like at least 50% and maybe more um, of QAnon followers are women, which, um, which makes for an interesting situation because as, as me as work in terrorism shows, if you bring women on board to your political messaging, you have, a unique and very strong influence on their family members. And me, I'll, I'll let you speak about that a little more. Well, so Mick, um, my next book, which is coming out in a few months, it's in production now, which was about the women in jihad. And so it's called Veiled Threats. And when you look at the way in which ISIS was recruiting the young girls from Bethnal Green Academy in the UK, they were asking young women 
Did you want to help the orphans in Syria? And of course, the answer was always yes. And for me, this is the equivalent of, did you want to save the children? Because no one's going to say no to that question. But it also speaks to women, you know, and again, I don't want to give a stereotype that, you know, we're more maternal, but I think it speaks to women at a very basic instinctive um, way that they want to protect children. They want to protect the defenseless. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very interesting. Uh, uh, it's very interesting how people get into uh, the these you know QAnon uh, in specifically, but conspiracy theories in general. And uh, in in chapter three, like uh, uh, you lay out this this idea of of unfreezing, where people kind of become uh, unmoored from their, their 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 norms, their normal life. Something happens to them that they, they kind of change, uh, and they're seeking out uh, kind of a new normal. Um, Sophia, could you kind of talk about what what unfreezing actually is uh, and how it works in this context? Right. Um, Unfreezing is actually a term that uh, we talk about when we talk about radicalization to terrorism, uh, because it is a pretty well-researched pathway to radicalization. When a person becomes disconnected from their community, their, their responsibilities, their home life, their work, um, and so there's no social norm to hold them to a standard. You, they, they, maybe there's a tragedy that happened that um, makes them homeless, or maybe they've relocated and don't have any, anybody to turn to, or you know, maybe there's a war in the region and they become displaced. Um, they come into the state of unfreezing, which means like they're untethered to any moral scale, any social normative system. And so they're very vulnerable to radicalization efforts, which a lot of radical groups and cults know about, and they seek out individuals in this state specifically. So, you know, cult recruiters often go to train stations and look for people who look kind of lost and miserable and then approach them and talk to them because they know that in this state, if you offer the person companionship, and a warm meal, and a place to sleep, they will accept the ideology that comes with it without questioning it. And so what happened to us all in the past few years is a kind of a massive unfreezing. There was so much change going on politically um, in the United States. You know, we had Trump presidency that was deliberately undermining traditional ways of doing things and traditional norms and it made a lot of us question, you know, what's right and what's wrong and who is there to protect us versus to take, take advantage of us. Um, we had a few sex scandals with figures that were until then held in very high regard. So Hollywood elite like Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby or Washington elite like Bill Clinton or um, Anthony Weiner. Um, all of these stories chipped away at our trust in in institutions and and the political hierarchy and the law as well. Uh, Because how could these atrocities go on for so long and nobody was there to stop them, right? Um, And also, you know, of course, the COVID pandemic made a particularly poignant um, emphasis on it. But even until then, the um, science and and pharmaceutical industry and medical industry were 
being kind of shaken by a number of very public scandals that exposed abuses of of their power and and privilege, such as the opioid crisis and and all of these pesticides and and poisons that we discover have been in our food and were covered up by an industry that was supposed to stand guard, right? So we have a lot of us experienced something like unfreezing um, in its traditional sense on a very massive scale. And so we were made to question our ideas of what's right and what's wrong, what's moral, what is immoral, who is the authority that we trust. Um, And a lot of us came out of that questioning, not trusting anybody really, and seeking something completely different, like a 180 degree turn from the old. And QAnon, of course, swept in with this preposition that it's all a sham. The government is all bad people. The you know, Hollywood elites are all pedophiles. Scientists are all quacks. Um, and it spoke to a lot of people in the state of unfreezing and it made them listen to whatever stories QAnon told because in addition to this preposition, QAnon also was a community that offered support, emotional support, and companionship and somebody to talk to anytime, day or night, with very little effort. And so QAnon, in a way, was a radical movement that a lot of people um, gravitated to as a result of this massive unfreezing. Yeah, it's fascinating because it, uh, for me, it, it resonates because uh, it, it seems very similar to what I've uh, experienced when I've talked to conspiracy theories and, you know, the more traditional conspiracy theorists, like people who have fallen into 9-11 or even like the flat earth people, uh, they usually have something going on in their lives uh, around the time that they have their, their red pill moment. Uh, and you know, for, for a lot of them, it's simply being unemployed. And it's it's having a lot of spare time. Yes, the old saying: the devil will find work for idle hands to do, which is kind of true uh, because you know people's people's minds will go in any kind of direction when they are, like you say, kind of untethered uh, and un, unfrozen. Uh, and this, and- one of the reasons it's going to be so popular in the UK, there was the Jimmy Savile scandal, right. and so it starts to look like. Well, Savile was friends with Prince Charles and he was at the palace all the time. And then there were all these accusations around the royal family. And so what happens is you only need the tiniest kernel of truth for some of these crazy conspiracy theories to start to sound like they make sense. And, and you know, we often joke that even a broken clock is accurate twice a day. So no matter how many times QAnon was generating these crazy ideas and these falsehoods and prophecies that never saw fruition, the one or two times that they could point to a real example made everything else seem plausible. Yeah, you have the section in, in the book called uh, True Lies, where you talk about the various different things uh, that, that people yeah, raise concerns about, uh, which for them are, are, are genuine concerns, and sometimes they are you know, based on genuine concerns. Uh, and this was interesting for me because you know, when I, I talk about how to talk to people, what I, I talked to, one of the things I mentioned is something that uh, I think Daniel Dennett like, suggested, which is, is validate their true concerns. Uh, where you try to figure out, you know, what are they actually concerned about, and then you know, talk about about that. It seems, in a way, that kind of approach has been somewhat weaponized by by QAnon, where they they take valid concerns and they just kind of uh, tweak them and then lead them in a certain 
direction. You, know, you, you have the, the disgust with government and Hollywood elites, the distrust in science, um, you know, from all the, the different changing, even like different changing dietary guidelines and things like that. Eggs are good one year and then the next year they're not, they're not good and people start distrusting science. It's a, a strange, slippery slope. Uh, but you, you've got this, uh, this really nice diagram, which I'll, I'll pop up on screen uh, when I do the final edit, but uh, it's, it's kind of showing how, you, how people go from this state of these unfrozen social domains through what you describe as folklore, uh, which is this, this large collection of things. And I'm looking in this, this little, uh, little, little diagram you have here, and you have, you have flat earth. In, in folklore. How does Flat Earth connect to QAnon? I think this Flat Earth is, is one of the narratives within folklore um, that speaks to people who distrust science in mm. general. It also includes um, you know, vaccine denialism and the idea that COVID was developed as a bioweapon and used by the cabal to capitalize on the pandemic and, and mask production and, and things like that. Um, and there is a, a sizable proportion of, of QAnon followers who just distrust anything that comes out of a scientific journal or, you know, Dr. Fauci is the evil guy for them and so on. And to, to speak to, to what you just said, um, QAnon really, I mean, to put a positive spin on this disaster, if we may, um, QAnon, QAnon really exposed to all of us whose eyes are open, real problems we have with transparency in the government, with accountability of people who are the elites, with some of the inscrupulous practices among, you know, scientists and pharmaceuticals who stand to benefit financially from covering up certain research or, you know, doing shady research and so on. And, one way to see QAnon is it's a lot of people who are hurting, you know, not knowing what's right and what's wrong and whom to trust is a horrible place to be emotionally. And QAnon narratives is their way of coping with this hurt. I mean, creating stories and telling our story is how we all, we humans are processing pain. That's why talk therapy can be really helpful. So if we look at it from this perspective, there are a lot of hurting people among us and they're hurting for reasons that are legitimate outside mm -hmm. of the story they tell about, you know, why they're hurting. And so, you know, instead of demonizing them, which is an impulse that, you know, happens or, or wanting to argue with them or put them down or just completely ignore them, the best thing we can take out of this situation is we need to solve a lot of problems and we need to help a lot of these people. If we want to move on from this as a single country, as a society that's capable of moving forward with functioning institutions and a functioning democracy. One of the things you've noticed is that people tend to layer their, their belief in conspiracy theories so that if they are, uh, if they believe that the moon landing was faked there's a good chance they also are a birther. There's a good chance that they also believe that 9-11 was an inside job and the chemtrails. And so one of the things that was unique about that image was to give you this idea that QAnon had become almost, you know, as Anna Merlin from The Atlantic said, it was a, you know, it was like a conspiracy singularity. 
So now QAnon is able to absorb, almost like the Borg in Star Trek, mm-hmm. all of the pre-existing um, conspiracy theories that existed years prior to it. And so those people don't feel isolated, tinfoil hat wearing crazies anymore. Now they're welcomed into a new community. Yeah, so the, the, the flat earthers and the 9-11 people can kind of get together at last. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's very weird for me uh, because, you know, I, I kind of lived in this this conspiracy world for, for a while and they have always been kind of, you know, siloed and uh, isolated. Uh, and, you know, the, the people who were flat earth people would not talk to 9-11 people. 9-11 people wouldn't talk to UFO people. UFO people wouldn't talk to the chemtrail people. Uh, and now the idea that they've all kind of come together is 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 very strange to me, and I think it's kind of a, a new world in a way. And I think the these these individual people who just focus on one conspiracy theory are going to kind of fade away to a degree, and you're going to have more and more of this meta conspiracies uh, where everything is 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 enclosed together, which is going to be interesting to see how it plays out over the coming years. But I think your instinct about identifying, this is from your book, but identifying where someone's limit is and then starting from that point and and working backwards is very similar to what Sophia has been advocating. And so before we even talked about being on your show, I had written you a fan letter (laughs) to say, by the way, I just read your book and I've listened to your podcast and I absolutely love it because I don't know if you're trained as a psychologist, but your instincts were so good to identify the parameters of belief and where the disbelief begins. And that's your starting point. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not trained as anything <laughs> uh, except for uh, 3D graphics and computers. Uh, but uh I think what what it comes from is just simply talking to a lot of people, and uh, you know, a lot uh, a lot of the time, people form their opinions about conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists without ever really interacting with any of them. And you get this idea that they're just tinfoil hat wearing crazies, which some of them are, but a lot of them are just regular people, just very very ordinary people who have just you know fallen into into some kind of rabbit hole, and they've made some mistakes uh, about you know, the way the world works and they've ended up in this, this strange uh, blend of fantasy and reality, but they really are ordinary people and they, they do have their limits. They do have their limits and identifying those, those limits is, is very important. We wanted to also, and, and we said this a few times in the book, you know, we didn't want to sit there and, and even Sophia said it today. We didn't want to sit there and say they're all idiots and they're, you know, gullible or they're just, you know, I mean, Putin may see them as useful idiots. We don't want to call them idiots. But we have people with master's degrees. There are people who believe in QAnon who are professionals. There are people who went to Harvard. So we're not dealing just with this lower echelon, uneducated, you know, sort of this notion of, you know, trash. No, not at all. We've got a tranche of people from across the spectrum. And so we have to take it seriously to do otherwise, you know, we proceed at our own peril. All right. So let's talk a bit about, you know, what can we do about, about QAnon? And this is kind of the focus of uh, chapter four of the book, uh, Life After Q. And you start off talking about what happens to people after Joe Biden's inauguration, essentially. And uh, the January the 6th revolution didn't pan out. The storm never arrived. 
so you know what what happens to people and there's there's like a range of 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 outcomes uh, that you talk about and maybe Sophia you could kind of go over that the the diehards the doubters and the defectors and you know why why people arrive at these different destinations from the the same position there have now been several more than one of these uh, events that QAnon predicted wouldn't happen or something else so the you know election was supposed to go to, to Donald Trump and then the inauguration was not supposed to inaugurate Joe Biden but Donald Trump and every time that the prophecy doesn't pan out um, we see you know the same kind of waves of, of some discontent and uh, People are roughly divided into three camps. So the diehards are sticking to their guns and they explain this non-event in the same way as they explain everything else through another conspiracy theory. So the inauguration really did, like the election really did go to Trump and the inauguration, even though it seemed like it was Biden, it wasn't really Biden or maybe it was pre-recorded and the actual inauguration happened at the right place at the right time, but with Donald Trump. Somebody was saying that, you know, if you look really carefully on the video of, of Joe Biden swearing on the Bible, the Bible is wrapped in something, so it's not a real Bible. And somebody else counted the number of flags at the inauguration, and it was number, number 17. And guess what letter is 17 in the alphabet? It's Q. So clearly, you know, they say this was a message to all of us. This is not for real. But, you know, in fact, Trump is being, you know, is running the country behind the scenes as he's rounding up members of the cabal and getting ready for this mass execution. So the diehards are so deep into this QAnon rabbit hole, they can't possibly see the light. And then they're doubters. This is a group who, you know, they are trying to reconcile would they accept this reality with the QAnon folklore that they're not yet ready to let go of? And they're having a lot of emotional problems. They express a lot of, you know, depression, anxiety, suicidal gestures or ideations. Um, and they're going online in search of answers to questions that are raised by these reality checks. Um, and unfortunately, very often, they are targeted when they do that by radical groups that are not queuing on, like right-wing militias um, who are ready to, you know, embrace them and, and offer them an explanation for how QAnon is dumb and they've been misleading them all this time, but this neo-Nazi group has all the answers. So that's a troubling trajectory um, that, that we're seeing in the, in the online chatter among doubters. Um, and, and then there are defectors and that's, uh, you know, those individuals who, for whatever reason, some of them, you know, before January 6th, they discovered some gaping inconsistency in QAnon narrative and, you know, had the presence of mind to really logically address them and arrive at the conclusion that QAnon must be false. Um, others, you know, their lives have circled, cycled so out of control because of their QAnon following. They had a nervous breakdown, had to go to a mental hospital where, you know, they were treated with medications that they needed and therapy. And in the end, they ended up disavowing QAnon. Or maybe they've lost their jobs, which happened to a lot of these people, or they lost their family. Um, and of course, the January 6th situation was a rude awakening to a lot of them. So the third group are those people who are officially, or at least they're saying they're out of QAnon, 
Um, and again, they're very vulnerable because they've lost this huge chunk of their lives, these connections with other people that were really important to them and a set of beliefs and a moral certainty that they're doing the right thing while everybody else is, is, you know, lost sheep. And so, you know, this is another group that, that is there. It's possible that they will relapse if their, their mental health needs are not addressed, if their social needs are not addressed. Uh, we don't yet know how they're going to fare long term, but um, the promising thing is that people are able to leave QAnon, um, and some of them become very vocal advocates for others. And you know, there are people who've established uh, um, places on the internet for for others like them to come and and, and seek the whatever you know companionship and support that they need, um, or they spoke out in. In the, um, in the news, they gave interviews to journalists to just give voice to this other possibility on the other end of QAnon. Um, Mia, you wanted to add something? Well, so we know, actually, because Sophie and I have been working on terrorism for a very long time, um, we know from the CVE, which is countering violent extremism, there's like this whole literature about how do you get someone who's a terrorist to leave the group? And so actually a friend of mine, Christian Picciolini, who previously was a neo-Nazi and he's had a show on MSNBC and he's written a number of books. He talks about the fact that when he personally started to have doubts about being a neo-Nazi, he was so afraid of being found out that actually he got more neo-Nazi racist tattoos and he beat up more people of color. And so the behavior didn't necessarily match the inner, you know, tumult that was going on because he was having these doubts and very afraid that people would figure out that he was doubting. And so part of what we have to be cognizant of, because we've talked about some of the differences with terrorism, we also have to see that there might be some similarities and lessons that can be learned, that someone's behavior vis-a-vis QAnon and that they might appear to be boosting QAnon to the end of the earth they might also still be a doubter. So we need to provide some sort of off-ramp, some sort of exit for them to leave. But it's very important that they feel they can do so safely and they can do so in that they're not walking away from the only community that they currently even have because everyone among their family and friends has written them off. Yeah, and that's something I've I've certainly noticed myself with people is that uh, they do intensify things sometimes before they they give it up. Uh, they, they get these very strong feelings of of, of doubt, uh, cognitive dissonance uh, when you know they 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 uh, they become unsettled and unbalanced, and they seek out the behavior that has helped them in the past, which is going and watching things on YouTube. And people are giving me this exact description, like they they saw something being debunked. And then they went off and spent the entire night watching other, other videos until they felt like it wasn't debunked again. And this is something that Stephen Hassan uh, talks about in his books a lot is that cults often engage uh, in what they teach people a thing called thought stopping, where the, you, if you feel uh, you know, the real world coming into your brain, you have to shut it out somehow by, by, uh, uh, by they do things like chanting. And the watching YouTube videos, I feel, is kind of the conspiracy theory version of mindless chanting in, in, in cults, uh, which is a, kind of a fascinating uh, uh, parallel. Uh, um, so 
on in chapter four, you have you know you're the only I think you only have two diagrams in the entire book, and the other one is is is, is this one, which I'll I'll put a better version up up, and it, it's showing like the 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 four uh, areas you think can contribute to. Uh, to helping people with QAnon and helping the, the problem in general. And you've got building immunity, limiting exposure, offering treatment and adjusting expectations. And you know, we, were, we were kind of talking about um, treatment to a degree there, like you know, offering people treatment. And this is something that I've, I've kind of had like just problems with phrasing things like this, uh, because whenever I talk to people, the idea that they might be mentally ill is something that people violently oppose. And it's, it's very difficult to get someone into treatment if they, they believe that you know, the world is lying to them. So when you're offering treatment, who are you offering it to? You, you think there's, there's a, like a, a segment of the, that population who is ready for the treatment and will be more easily led into it? The QAnon community is very diverse. A number of them have already had some sort of a mental health diagnosis mm. and probably, you know, are familiar with possibilities for treatment and might be seeking them out. Those doubters who are experiencing all these difficult emotions, they might need treatment made available to them, which is right now very difficult. All of my colleagues who are practicing clinical psychology or psychotherapy are overwhelmed with requests in the wake of COVID lockdowns, mm. A lot of people develop psychological problems or, you know, their old issues came to the surface. Um, so there's a real shortage of care and a lot of people um, are not able to afford it. Maybe they don't have health insurance. Maybe their health insurance doesn't cover psychotherapy. So whatever proportion of QAnon followers would like treatment and are aware of this need, um, I feel there has to be an honest conversation um, in the government about how to make that available to them. But if they're not interested in treatment, you're right. There's absolutely nothing we can do for them. The alternative that, that we discuss in the book sidesteps the stigma around mental health, illness, and treatment, which you've encountered in your conversations with QAnon followers and that no doubt really permeates, you know, our society at present time. Um, and that is um, mindfulness-based stress reduction. It's a, um, it's not a therapy. It's a group-based treatment that usually lasts about eight weeks. Um, you're not expected to self-disclose at all. Uh, so you don't have to say, you know, why you're there, what your thoughts or feelings are. Um, instead, what this program does is it teaches people about physiology and psychology of stress. That's one thing. Another thing is it teaches people um, how to practice meditation uh, and moment-to-moment -moment awareness. And the third thing is it, it kind of gets them into the habit, hopefully, of doing mindful movement. And all of it together, this is a really well-established program. It's been shown to be extremely effective long-term in treating all kinds of psychopathologies, um, including anxiety and depression and PTSD. Um, it also is a kind of community that you 
come to face to face once a week, which is invaluable for a lot of people who had that community in QAnon. And if, if they are to break away from it, they need an alternative. Um, so yeah, treatment for those who are, are interested in it. Sure. But QAnon is a really complex problem. 30 million people are not all in it for one reason. And so anything that will really counter the influence of QAnon is going to have to be similarly diverse. So in addition to treatment, right, we really have to worry about and work toward limiting the influence of individuals and groups who spread this information online. And we've already seen after January 6th, when Donald Trump was deplatformed, the amount of disinformation circulating on social media has decreased by something like 70%. Just one individual was responsible for so much disinformation. And what's more, people, participants, or what do they call them, uh, users on Facebook and, and Twitter were less likely to engage with disinformation content by clicking mm-hmm. on it or liking it or retweeting it or spreading it further. So it is of fundamental importance to decide to have some sort of a discussion and hopefully legislation that would not make it a spur of the moment decision on, on, you know, Zuckerberg's uh, um, side, you know, okay, we're going to deplatform this individual, but that would create some rules that we could then hold platforms responsible for, for enforcing them. Right. Um, The social media are just crawling with these trolls and bots. Some of them, you know, foreign, some of them domestic, whose entire existence on these platforms is designed to maximize presence and and influence of these things. We need some sort of a uh, transparency effort on the part of the social media giants that would allow researchers to track these individuals or programs, to identify them quickly, to curb their um, influence, right? And there's none of that happening. In fact, just the other day, I, I saw that Facebook blocked a group of researchers who were using their data from mm. assessing things like this. So like almost as though they're sabotaging, you know, um, efforts to curtail influence of disinformation, because let's face it, these really highly polarizing, very emotion laden posts are the ones who are getting the most user engagement, right? So it's kind of against Facebook's interests to have them curtailed. So there are a number of of different directions that have to be addressed, you know, treatment, um, social media transparency and accountability. We also need to work on just social media literacy among our public because, you know, distrust in science, it's only part the fault of science, which at times goes wrong, like everything does. The other part is that a lot of people, a lot of members of our society are unable to tell how to judge quality of information. They, they really don't understand why a YouTube video is better or worse, you know, than a peer-reviewed journal. So we need to, to really increase our efforts in educating our children and also our adults about how to decipher information, how to make better choices as consumers of information. Yeah, uh, we do. There's a lot of things that can be done, and you, you lay out a lot of these things here. And I, I really do like the idea that you have of uh, 
kind of giving people therapy without it being called therapy. And one of the other things that you talk about is, is volunteering, uh, encouraging people to volunteer, which I think is a very uh, good way of, of people kind of regaining uh, contact with reality. Uh, and I, I, you know, I think a lot of the problem that we have is just simply people who get into a, a, a position where they're only looking at things from one perspective and they're only looking at one kind of set of limited in, information sources and uh, anything that you can do that will broaden their horizons is a good thing. So I think the, the volunteering is a great thing. Sophia, actually, in the chapter that she she wrote, talked about getting away from your screen and just going out for mm. a walk. Just be yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm not I'm not in outside for no reason. I wanted to emphasize that being, you know, going back in time before we could be contacted constantly, before we had every push notification. I mean, we know from people like um, Jen Twenge that talks about the uh, the iGen, the extent to which we have become somewhat addicted to our devices, and that this has actually caused more depression. Although we feel connected, we actually feel more isolated in the long term. And so part of it is building new connections. And so that's where the volunteering comes in, because you're actually, you're able to express that altruistic tendency that might have pulled you into QAnon to save the children, but you're actually going to be saving children or helping the homeless or doing something good. And that will boost your also, it, it, it will actually allow those dopamine receptors to ping a little bit that make you feel good about what you're doing, make you jump out of bed with a purpose. And so instead of having QAnon and being a keyboard warrior, that that's your purpose. Now you have a purpose of helping people in real life. Yeah. And that's a great thing. And uh, a lot of times when people talk to me, they're not really the type of people who are into save the children. They are people who have become obsessed with some kind of conspiracy theory. And something I try to do is, is try to steer them towards another obsession uh, because they're, they're the type of person who's going to get obsessed over something. So I, you know, I suggest things like even like playing video games can be a, a better thing, especially the online ones where you have some kind of social interaction with people. But I, I, I suggest other hobbies. Uh, one of the ones I frequently suggest is lock picking, which is, is a bit of an odd thing, but it's something I personally found to be really interesting to do. And there is actually an online community of people, and then you can go to lock picking contests. But if you can, if you can steer somebody towards something other uh, than this obsession, it, it doesn't really matter what it is. I think, and that's why things like you know the, the, the suggestions that you put forward. Uh, like the the mindfulness and the, uh, the volunteering and uh, you know just getting out into nature are actually things that will actually work. You know, I, I know that they, they do actually work in practice. Uh, but something I want to talk about is kind of a a fun thing, which is not well, not really fun, but the 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 idea of elves. Uh, this is something that was suggested that you know, we have trolls, and perhaps what we need is elves. In uh, social spaces online, people are are often um, you know, they they they're only getting one perspective, which essentially is the troll perspective, and we need to get uh, another perspective in there. And this is something that was suggested you know, many years ago by Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule, and they called it uh, cognitive infiltration, which sounded a lot scarier than than uh, <laughs> approaching it as elves. But can uh, can you talk about? what this concept is, like the elves infiltrating these, these social spaces? 
Yeah. So we know from psychology research that a group tends to become of one mind, right? We have a number of famous studies where, you know, you, you basically instruct a bunch of uh, actors to agree to something completely ridiculous, even calling something that's white, black. And, and then you introduce a layperson, an actual participant into this group, and they watch person after person after person say this ridiculous thing. And in the end, most people, most of the time, will agree with the group on something as ridiculous as white is black. So this kind of conformity in groups is a real replicable phenomenon. And of course, you know, in, in these social forums, so social media forums, that's often what happens. Somebody will introduce the idea of space lasers and a bunch of other individuals will jump on board and, you know, amplify this and, and repeat it. And a person looking at this exchange is essentially in the same experimental paradigm as we've demonstrated in social psychology where they will end up conform with the group's ridiculous opinion. The thing is, though, a lot of these individuals are not really individuals. They're either trolls who are paid or they derive pleasure from, you know, putting out ridiculous things online and watching people squirm, or they're bots. They're, they're programs created to amplify certain kinds of messaging. And so it's an illusion a lot of time. Um, so, in that kind of experimental paradigm, there is an antidote that we've discovered against conformity. What happens is if you introduce even one actor into this group of, you know, ridiculous spewing um, actors who says the opposite of what they're saying, even if that opposite is just as ridiculous, let's say they're calling white red now, right? So everybody's saying, you know, it's black, it's black, it's black, and then you have somebody saying it's red, when it comes to the actual participant, they're a lot more likely now to call out the truth and say, no, it's actually not black or red, it's white. So when people understand or experience the fact that there's no monolith of opinion, they're a lot more able to defend their own perspective, their own perception and, and stand their ground. And so in online media, you know, we have these malicious efforts behind trolls and bots. We also have psychopaths, unfortunately, you know, in our midst who are doing it for fun. And so the idea in the book was that perhaps we can think about how would it be to have elves to counteract this negative influence online. And elves, you know, can be anybody. It could be bots as well. It could be programs that are designed to counteract this information. It could be trolls sitting on the one side and then the experimenters sitting on the other and just addressing disinformation in real time. Um, but it also could be volunteers. So people who came out of these um, radical conspiracy theory groups and are seeking out an outlet to counter the kind of disinformation that took them down the rabbit hole and, and you know, messed with their lives and, and, and their friendships and their families. Um, this could be a fruitful avenue for them to pursue where they could really, you know, having firsthand experience with this stuff, who better than they to address it in that way? Yeah. And that's something I, I really like that approach uh, of, of having a, a dissenting voice essentially in, in these, these, these walled gardens that people find themselves in. And it's something that I've had experience with myself 
uh, in that I've been that d- dissenting voice, and I know I, I do try to join these these online uh, groups. And some of them were, you know, will reject you. But you know, if you get people who are actually open to to some discussion, you can introduce ideas. Uh, the thing I found is that it takes a very long time for it to have any effect. Uh, it's just kind of a general point, I guess, with with conspiracy theories, is that people do not change immediately. But I, I think it's one of these things where you're having an effect like a bit at a time, and you're gradually kind of pushing back, uh, you know, pushing back. Uh, something uh, until it does actually have a noticeable effect. Uh, and I, I think the idea of having uh, people put in that situation, like volunteers or, or, or whoever, uh, even bots, even bots uh, will actually have an effect. And it would be great to see that, that uh, you know, working more in the future. We, we have colleagues um, that we've been friends with, uh, Vidya Ramalingam and Ross Frenette for years, that they have an organization called Moonshot CV, so countering yeah. extremism, and they have this technique. They and what they do is it's called redirection, and it's sort of they're working with Google. So let's say someone Google's how do I kill a you know insert name of group, and instead of getting for the algorithm to give you how to kill the person, it suggests something else. And so this redirection, it fits very nicely with Sophia's suggestion about elves, because what it is, is it's redirecting your efforts and your enthusiasm, because many of the people who believe in QAnon believe it with a passion, but let's use that passion and let's use it for good. And so, you know, we're, in part because within the terrorism community, it's a small group. We all know each other. We all have each other on speed dial. We read each other's work. And, you know, it's a really good idea to be able to take someone's sort of passion, but for good instead of for evil. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, well, I think we've, we've kind of gone over like uh, a lot of the things in the book and you've been talking for about an hour. Uh, so let, do you have any... Um, kind of final thoughts that you want to kind of wrap up this this with? Uh, maybe start with uh, Sophia. Well, I want to emphasize what I um, mentioned at the beginning, that QAnon is a very different kind of radical movement than we're used to, and that we cannot address it effectively without developing new treatments, new initiatives, um, and as a psychologist, uh, one major direction that I see that is necessary to pursue in, in, in this is to, to worry about mental health and to offer opportunities for treatment and to offer a variety of treatment that would speak to a variety of different people. So, you know, some, somebody would be feeling stigma, then MBSR is maybe a better possibility for them than somebody who is happy with traditional psychotherapy. Um, offering assessments, some schools are already doing that, but I think in general, we all came out of these lockdowns not quite as well off as we were before. And we're seeing that across the board, um, so, you know, something more centralized to gauge where we are and what we need to be better um, as far as mental health is a really important uh, factor in this. Mia? I wanted to add that, you know, what we're seeing now is very dangerous from the perspective of it's going to be very hard to leave QAnon aside if one of the major two political parties is embracing it. 
And we saw in the summer of 2020, we talked about in the book, we had a, a map where you could see which states were most impacted. But we had 97 QAnon candidates going into the primaries, of which 24 were successful, um, 22 were Republican, two were independent. And two were successful. So we have Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And we're a year before the next election, and we already have 20 QAnon candidates, which means that we're going to see a lot more. But we're also seeing this very clever approach to take over school boards, to make sure what the children are taught. Either these QAnon women are going to homeschool their kids, or these kids are going to go to school at the age of seven or eight, believing that there is a global cabal. So we're going to also need to provide teachers with the ballast to be able to confront what is going to be a cute generation. The most important thing we can do is we need to separate the Republican Party from QAnon. We need to at least demonstrate to the leadership that initially was very diffident. When you look at what Kevin McCarthy and Stephen Scalise were saying about Marjorie Taylor Greene, before she won her primary, Scalise donated the maximum amount to her opponent, and, and Kevin McCarthy called her Looney Tunes. And then all of a sudden, when she wins the primary, she's now the doll of the Republican Party because she's raising money. And so we really do need to keep emphasizing country before party. We need to get the Republican Party back on track. But we also we're, we're probably going to have to do it one more time in 2022 and, and get out the vote the way people did in 2020, because otherwise we're going to have a QAnon um portion of Congress the way we had a Tea Party. And they are going to be able to have a spoiler effect on any kind of bill or law in the future. We do really have to take it seriously. Not like ISIS seriously, but we have to take it seriously because it has such a corrosive effect on our democracy that in the long term, this is a peril that is far more dangerous than the red peril was in the 50s. Yeah, that's great. And that's something that really resonated me, with me when I saw it in the book. You mentioned you know, uh, QAnon is not going away until it is rejected by the Republican Party, which I think is, is very true. It, it has this kind of tacit acceptance uh, that is, is allowing it to, to grow and uh, lets a lot of people get into it. So that's definitely a very important thing. Uh, well, I want to thank you very much uh, for this discussion. It's been fascinating. Uh, the book is Passels and Pedophiles, Inside the Mind of QAnon by Mia Bloom and Sofia Moskalenko. Uh, and uh, do you have uh, social media that people can follow you on, like Twitter? Uh, I'm at Mia M. Bloom, so all one word with my middle initial. And uh, I, I, I'm on Twitter. I try to be on Twitter a little less, but I right. am also. <laughs> and if any of the listeners have a question, you can contact me at the university. I answer every question that's posed. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, I'm also on Twitter. I forget my handle, but if you search my name, there are not so right. many people with my last name. So. I think it's right. Esmoskalenko1. There you go. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you very much again. And you, uh, uh, I look forward to seeing your, your future books uh, because you know, this one was very good and you obviously have a bunch of good books already and uh, good luck with your work in the future. Well, thank thank you. you, Mr. West. And as I mentioned, you know, I wasn't just flattering you. I really, what had happened was I had been, both Sophie and I were briefing Fort Bragg and it was the soldiers 
that brought me a copy of your book. And they said, have you read this? And I said, I haven't. And so then I downloaded all of your podcasts and I read your book. So you have a massive following among the elite soldiers at Fort Bragg who said, you have to read this. So thank you. Can't complain. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. All right, guys. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.